when we first built it, we said, we're going to choose modern technology, all modern tools. On the one hand, you're like, oh, I have all this technical debt. And it's like, yeah, but you also probably have a lot of customers and money. If you have to say your name and then spell it every time you want to give it to somebody, it's like probably a sign that you should not call it that. We did everything to try to find a name. And then finally, we just got to this day where Joel calls everyone in the kitchen and he's like, we're just going to vote and pick a name. And I was like, what do you think of Trello? And they're like, oh, hello, Jello. And I was like, do you hate it? And they're like, no, I don't know what it means. I'm like, perfect. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, the show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we power the world's best enterprise software. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, we hear from Michael Pryor, the founder and CEO of Trello. Michael has had an incredible career as one of the founders of Fog Creek Software, which has spun out products such as Fogbugs, Stack Overflow, Glitch, and of course, Trello, which was acquired by Atlassian for $425 million back in 2017. We cover a wide range of topics, primarily from the perspective of a bottom-up, go-to-market approach. We start off with a bit of Michael's background and then dive into his perspective on naming products, approaches to user management and single sign-on, disruptive pricing models, and product assortment. I could have asked him questions for another four hours. We'll have to have him back on the show again in the future. Hope you enjoy the show. All right, Michael, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Cool. So let's just jump right in. Tell us a little bit about your background. I know you started a couple companies. So tell us what that's about. So let's roll back the clock. 1998, I graduated from college. Congratulations. To, thank you. I moved to New York City and I thought I would just stay there for a little bit of time. But I met someone there at my job. His name was Joel. We were working at a company called Juno, which was like a free email provider. At the time, it was like competing with AOL. Yeah. It was like you paid to sign up for AOL. This was, you got free email, but we'd show you ads. So we worked at Juno for like two years. I met Joel there. He had come from Microsoft. And then like the whole tech scene was kind of like falling apart a little bit. People were getting fired and laid off, and it wasn't as fun. So we were like, hey, let's go do something else. And I was really young and naive and dumb and kind of privileged to be in the position I was in, you know, software developer in 2000. You can make a decent salary in New York. and Sure. So I was like, sure, let's start a company. Silicon, I don't know anything. Silicon Alley, right, is it yeah, called it? exactly. Yeah. But it was like, it was all ad tech or finance. So like if you were going to start a company in New York, in the software industry, if you want to, if you were a programmer and you wanted a job, it was ad tech or finance. There were no pure software companies there. So Joel and I were like, hey, let's just start a real software company, like they do on the West Coast, but we'll do it in New York because we don't want to move. Cool. So we did that. We started a company called Fog Creek Software. We didn't even know what we were going to build. We just started building stuff. In fact, the first thing we made was this uh, CMS. It was like a desktop CMS at the time when Ooh. Blogger and TypePad were coming. Yeah, so it it didn't really. It was like the right. Like space, but we just delivered it in the wrong way. It was like because you, you at the time it was really hard to configure the web servers. You needed like SSH access and all this kind of stuff, and people didn't know what that was, but they knew how to type in their FTP credentials. So we built a tool called CityDesk that was a CMS. But right idea, wrong 
product, right time, maybe. Then we built, we had this bug tracker thing sitting around, so we were like, let's sell that, and people started buying that. It was called Fogbugs. Yeah, it's cool. So you you were using it mainly internally, and you decided to sell it, or how did the, how did that? Yeah, Joel had built it before at like uh, Viacom when he worked at Viacom. Then okay. we used it at Juno. We called it Juno Bugs. So then when we used it at Fog Creek. We called it Fog Bugs. <laughs> Worst name ever. Um, and I actually think like the name actually had a really big impact on the trajectory of that product because I think that the way people like connect with your product, their emo- that emotional branding and stuff is very important. I mean, mm. look at Slack. Right. Yeah, there was HipChat before that, right? Elastian Hip to it. Like, there's lots of things that contribute to one product success, timing, all those kinds of things. But I think actually, the brand and that sort of emotional connection of your customer to what the product is, and that that carries through to the product itself and how you speak to them in the product. But I do think that the name plays a big important role in that. That's so, cool. That's that's probably not a super common. Belief, right? Like that name really matters. Well, I mean, people talk about the the domain name, right? Like sure. you want a short domain name, you know, you want a dot com. Although now they're all taken, and like things like that. But I do think, and it, oh, it can't be hard to spell. Like I think we're past that era when you can, like Tumblr, and you just like leave off the e yeah, or something. Yeah. Like if you have to, if just say your name and then spell it every time you want to give it to somebody, it's like probably a sign that you should. Not call it that. Yeah, it's a good point. And but, na- but what's one of the hardest problems in, in computer software? Naming, right? Yeah, yeah. So we built Fogbugs and, and started selling this bug tracking software. And about two years later, I'll come back to this in the story. These uh, two kids in Australia made this uh, program called Jira and uh, kind of were competing head to head with us. They were doing pretty good. We were, we were ahead in the beginning because we had a little head start and stuff, but they were doing pretty good. So that's funny. And yeah, we built lots of things over the years. We built a a screen sharing tool where you could like go to somebody else's computer where they were on the internet and you just give them a code and they would type it into a website and um, you could see their screen. Oh, right? cool. Very common now. Log me yeah. in, go to my PC. But this was before that. What was and it called? It, Copilot. Oh, cool. So like you could be my copilot right yeah. on my screen. It was a, that was a good name. But we didn't really invest in it. It was like the right time, the right product, but we needed to invest heavily in it. And the way we had built Fog Creek was we didn't take VC, you know, we weren't trying to get big. We took a lot of the profits, gave them back to the employees. We didn't like hire a bunch of people, and obviously we were in New York, so like the salaries were super high and things like that. You know, like we weren't trying to find a, a place of like low cost, you know, talent and and sort of uh, take sure. VC and double down and invest. And so we built features, but we basically invested alongside of our revenue growth. We were always profitable and those sorts of things. So anyway, we didn't invest heavily in Copilot and. You know, those log me in and go to my PC kind of became huge things at the time. So we kind of missed that a little bit. So fog bugs, you were selling to companies at that point. Yeah, we were selling that. That was another revenue source that we had, and it was doing great. You know, as time went on, like Jira just started becoming more and more. Yeah. Of a, a thorn in our side, or um, a standard, or you know, like they they just were getting more and more of the market share, and they just were doubling down on the features and. It just took off really in a big way. Yeah. So if you fast forward to 2010, Joel had always had this idea that the Q and A site for programmers online was called Experts Exchange. Oh yeah. It was just so evil. They like they like would put the answers in the page so Google would see it, but like when you went to the, it was like really hard to find the answer. You didn't know. You had to scroll all the way to the bottom or something. It was just kind of. Janky, and then they would make their, your company pay to get access to the answers, and we mm. thought that was kind of um, just a jerk move. 
you know, to like, oh, other people have written answers to these questions, but you have to pay for it. Like they own this knowledge essentially, you know. So anyway, that was Joel was talking to Jeff Atwood at the they time. They also didn't do a great job with naming on that one either, right? No, yeah, expert, <laughs> expert sex change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Misread that exactly. Yeah. You have to like write it down. Make sure yeah. you write it down. Yeah. Tell someone Capitalize else to spell the it. The right place. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So we were talking to Jeff Atwood at the time. He had a blog called Coding Horror. Joel had his blog called Joel and Software. So they had like big followings, you know. And that was primarily because they had spent ten years writing about software at a time when no one else was and yeah. blogs didn't really exist. So they had at that time in 2010, if you tried to start writing a blog or even today, it'd be like. Good luck. Like right. I mean, there's a lot of people out there talking, and so it's much more difficult. But at the time, Joel and Jeff had just this huge audience that they could see this network with, right? Because if you're going to do a Q and A site, you need the questions, you need the answers, so you need the people to be there on day one. Like if you just get there and there's like five questions, you're going to be like, eh, it's dumb, yeah. right? People are going to ask dumb questions and stuff like that. So they built uh, Stack Overflow. It was sort of a joint venture between Fog Creek and Jeff, and um, it took off. We almost made a mistake. We had been in the business of building software and then selling it, so we thought we would have other people build Q&A sites on top of the engine that was Stack Overflow mm. for any kind of topic. So the idea was we built this Q&A engine, we ran it for programming questions of Stack Overflow, but we were like, we'll charge you $10 a month and you can run your own Q&A site about motorcycles. Sure. So we ran a beta and we had people doing that. But the problem is like the only way a Q&A site works is if you have the people. Right. So you need the audience. So there's only like a small number of people that could get the audience size to the point it needed to be. Plus you wouldn't want to have like 10 sites on motorcycles. Right, you want the one Q and A side of motorcycles. So, like that meant that this business model that we had thought up, where we would sell the software, was actually the wrong business model. Sure, the, the valuable thing about Stack Overflow was not the software itself; it was the audience that had gotten there. So, the software contributed to that. I mean, the um, software was really well done. I think it you was, think about the comparative, you know, solutions at the time, Yahoo Answers or these other things like Stack Overflow. Is like a really, really great way to do Q. Sure, but in and of itself, that wouldn't have done it, Agreed. right? Like it, that wasn't what made Stack Overflow so valuable. Right. It was the fact that all the programmers were coming there every single day to ask questions, to get answers, and those sorts of things. So we almost made a mistake. One of the partners at Union Square Ventures came and talked to us and was like, "You know, I kind of feel like you should think about this." And and we were like, "Oh, that's kind of smart." And we decided to take an investment from them. And that was the first time we took VC. Oh, cool. Because we realized like we actually did need to build a giant like we need to get there first if we wanted to build these networks, right? So, and so you split Stack Overflow out off. of Fog Creek. Okay, yeah. so it became its own company independent. Yeah. Okay. And so there's like different taxation issues and legal issues about how you might do that and how it's set up and all those kinds of things, but um We've spun it off, and so Joel became the CEO of that company. I did operational stuff, so I guess by process of elimination, I was the CFO. <laughs> you know, I have no finance background, but but technically, if you look back in history, I was the CFO. That meant like I ran payroll and did all the you know, yeah, filed sure. taxes. We opened an office in London, so I did all that stuff. It was all business operations type stuff. Anyway, we still had Fog Creek, so I was running that. Joel was doing that part time. So we you were, were running. Fog bugs, because that was pretty much the that primary was the product. bulk of the revenue. Yeah, yeah. And but you, we were still building things. What was the team size? What was it like? Were you, were you like? I feel like we had about thirty or forty people. Did you think about it as enterprise software at that point? Oh yeah, okay, for sure. It was hosted or on prem. I don't remember. 
It was both. Okay, so you do both. So we had made the leap to the cloud and had rewritten a bunch of things in Ajax, so like it was like single page oh, type cool. of. So we had been developing it. There was a lot of technical debt early on. We made decisions was helped us from a business perspective, but long term were more problematic from like the code, like what we chose as our technology and that kind of stuff. Usually, always a Microsoft shop, right? Yeah, and we, so we had written some code to like actually, so we could write, we could still write in a quasi language like. ASP, which is a Microsoft yep. language, but it would convert it to PHP and stuff like that. And over time, as we added more and more to that, that meant that we had a more peculiar homegrown solution. So it was like a good business choice because it meant that we could ship to market really fast. But then over time, there were better solutions on the market, and the new developers were like, "Why would I?" I went Rails, yeah. yeah. And so she so kind of ended up in that weird situation where you're like. You know, you have to sort of pay down the technical debt. And I think about that a lot when I think about Trello. We made a lot of decisions when we first built it. We said we're going to choose modern technology, all modern tools. We're not even going to try to make it work on old browsers. We're going to choose like cool new stuff. Some of those decisions worked out really great. Like hmm. one of the things we chose Mongo, but at the time, this is in 2011, Mongo wasn't anything. Yeah. Right? And that company and the product grew over time. Got VC. They had yeah. more developers. They they basically and they were growing essentially in tandem with us. So that turned out to be a really good choice. Yeah. If you replay the clock, like you know, Scott and Mike, the Atlassian founders, chose uh, Java to build Jira, and we chose well, the first iteration was in Active Server Pages, but then like more like .NET like type of stuff. Sure. And I think it's interesting because like those technology choices can have this profound effect later on because you might have to pay. A lot of technical debt to rewrite something, whereas this new startup does not because they start on this new tech stack. But even then, Trello, the new thing, you know, if you fast forward 10 years and you're like, yeah, we, we wrote everything in CoffeeScript and like no one wants to use it anymore. So we had to like decaffeinate all our code, is what we did. You know, things like that where, you know, we didn't like React is super cool now and like we didn't build it in React. So we had to start doing that. We had to run a big project internally where we were writing. Pieces in React, but pieces in our old code base, and running them both simultaneously, so that we didn't have to do a whole complete rewrite. I think the joke with JavaScript stuff is it's like you you turn your back, and it's like there's a new framework that everyone's using, yeah. right? So it's a very hard ecosystem to stay on the latest and greatest with. So, so Node was fine, Mongo was fine. Like we did a couple things that that ended up being okay choices yeah. um, as time went on. But I just think about that how. On the one hand, you're like, oh, I have all this technical debt. And it's like, yeah, but you also probably have a lot of customers and money, <laughs> right? Whereas the startup that just started, of course, they can choose the modern framework. They don't have any of that technical debt, but they have no users, right? right. So, like, it's, you know, six one way, half dozen the other. But anyway, so we were at this point where Atlassian really had cornered that dev market and we weren't seeing a lot of growth in fog bugs. Mm. And we were like, it wasn't as exciting anymore either. So we, we kind of were trying to think, how do we reach an even bigger audience? Like we're writing software for developers, and then we just had done Stack Overflow. You know, like we're like, what if we wrote something that just could have a much bigger impact and reach more people? And but, but Stack Overflow had at this point had pretty good reach. Right? Yes, but it, but so, just among developers. So yeah, that was okay. cool. You yeah. could go to a party, and if there was like a developer there, you'd be like, yeah, we built this thing called Stack Overflow, and they'd be like, oh, that's awesome, right? Yeah. But we were like, wouldn't it be cool to make something where you could go anywhere and talk to people about it, and they'd be like, oh, that's awesome. So. Yeah. A couple things happened at the same time where we were we were looking at fog bugs 
at this sort of mental model of like a giant tracking database type thing, and then looking at what people actually did at work, and they'd be like sticking post-it notes up all over the walls, mm-hmm. and and trying to like understand that because we had fogbugs internally to track our own, you know, working on fogbugs, but yet the developers, if you look in their office, they had post-it, little, post-it notes, yeah. 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 And they, it's because they were going up a level. They were like two things. One is the database was just like too detail level, right? So it's more like, what am I working on right now? Mm-hmm. So Joel had this idea he, that he wanted to build a thing where everyone had a to-do list, but you could only hold five things in it. Mm. So imagine a web page where your list and then my list, and they're all next to each other, but they only hold five things. And so you can kind of look, go to that page and see everyone's shit. Sure. And that's if you think about that in your brain, you kind of see Trello, right? Which is also like a Kanban board and all those kinds of things that that existed at the time. Obviously, we didn't invent that. But this idea that we were going to take something that developers knew a lot about, strip away a lot of the developers' type stuff, like swim lanes and Gantt charts and those kinds of things, and just even the idea of tasks, mm. right? Like in Trello, we have cards. They're not issues. They're not tasks. And this is intentional, like. A lot of people use it to manage projects, but it is not a. I would not call it a capital P project management system, and that's that has a lot to do with like, you know, how you brand it, how you talk about it, but it's also like in the product itself. Like, what is the nomenclature? How do people experience the product? Mm-hmm. What are the expectations for the way features work and those kinds of things? So we're building something super horizontal, based on all these failures that we had in the past, like Copilot. Well, not total failures, but mistakes we had made along the way. We made a lot of different choices. Same with Stack Overflow. Like, we took a lot of learnings and applied them to the new product. So for Trello, you know, let's build on the new tech stack. Don't worry about the old versions of the browser. Like, just go, you know, forward in time. Is also um, use some off-the-shelf stuff rather than use like trying to build on your own little abstractions internally for yeah, everything, right? Yeah. And also try to do it in a way that's very bottoms up, right? Like if people love the tool and they use it, it's free. Then that's a huge moat because the next startup can't give away their product for cheaper. Because we had gotten burned by Elastium because we had a ton of small teams using Fogbugs because we were pretty cheap at the low end. But they had a site license at the time. It was like 5000 bucks for your whole company for Jira. Mm. So they ended up with a lot of very big customers, and we ended up with a very, a, like a lot of small customers. And we thought that that was. Protective because it was diverse. Like if we lost any given customer, it didn't affect us. But what happened was over time they could raise their prices and add new customers. Yeah. And they ended up doing this thing where they gave away Jira for ten users or With, less. Right. It was ten dollars and they gave it to charity. So it was a really good like it was charitable. It was a good marketing thing. Yeah. But also what it did was it dried up the sort of interest in our product because now we were way more expensive. If we had lowered our price at that end, the problem is we would have cut off like your revenue. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it was a very tough, you know, place to be in. So that's why when we did Trello, we were like, let's do a freemium product and we'll give away a ton of value. You know, we always said we'll get a hundred million people using it, one percent will pay us a hundred dollars a year, then we'll have a hundred million dollar business. That was just for you know to sure. try to like show the magnitude of of what we thought we were doing. Yeah, so we built a tool that people loved, and and they started using it. And we started we we made a bunch of mistakes along the way in Trello, like we almost named it Planety because <laughs> we couldn't come up with a name. We had an internal name called Trellis because it was it was like the code name when we went to work on it, and we thought you know it kind of gives a structure to yeah. something you're working on. So we called it Trellis. 
And people liked that, but then we couldn't get the domain name, and mm. we had to launch. And so we were going to be at a conference and launch it. Yeah, you launched it like a TechCrunch tech thing. Yeah, there, right? so we so we like had an actual deadline. Yeah, and we did everything to try to find a name. We like bought nameless. We went everywhere, and then finally we just got to this day where we Joel calls everyone in the kitchen, and he's like, "We're just going to vote and pick a name." And like, <laughs> crowdsourcing your name is the worst. So that's why we ended up, like we had always had a mascot. So we had a mascot for Trello at the time was this like manatee, and so people were like, "Well, you're doing planning, and it's a manatee, so we'll call it Planatee." Oh, you're gonna spell it like manatee? Yeah, Planatee, well, oh, <laughs> manatee. Or, or um, maybe we changed the mascot to an aardvark, and you know Trello has cards, so we'll call it Cardvark. That was the runner-up. Yes, yeah, so we left the kitchen and we were like, "Oh, we're gonna I call feel like Planetty." An animal names were popular at that part. I don't know. Too, well, definitely have a mascot. That's yeah. always a good thing for your for your product. You know, for swag. swag yeah. 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 So we left the kitchen and I was like, "Oh my god!" This is like I remember we had named our product Fogbugs, and I was like, "Oh, I cannot. I am not gonna name this Planetty. Like it's so bad. Yeah, so bad." And um, I went back to my desk, and Joel's like, "You have an hour. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, I, we can't get the domain name. We've tried for weeks and weeks and weeks to do something different, and we just can't." And so I went to an instant domain search website and just started typing words. And like after twenty minutes, an ad came up for Trello. You know, and I like went around the office, and I was like, "What do you think of Trello?" And they're like, "Oh, hello, Jello." And I was like, "Do you hate it?" And they're like, "No, I don't know what it means." I'm like, "Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Can you spell it?" And they're like, "T R E L L O." I'm like, "Perfect. Oh, good. It's yeah. very, and it's very short to yeah. type." So, so that's why I, why we picked the name. Do you um, still own Planetty.com? I think we let them Thanks. slide. Oh down. no! Oh no! I think I, had, <laughs> I think we like we built Trello inside Fog Creek, right? And then we spun it out after two years. We right. sort of self funded it for a while with our own funds, and then we spun it off and took money from Spark and Index in 2014, but. I think we still had the domain name, and then when we got acquired, I think we just stopped. stopped for you, I know. Someone yeah. out there is going to my license Planity. plate though is says Planity on it because <laughs> I thought that was funny. That's so. amazing. Yeah, the other mistake that we almost made was we were charging people. This is a common thing that people do when you first start out. You're like, oh, I'll charge people a flat fee, like you know, fifty bucks to use my product. But it, like then, it doesn't matter if you're a tiny. Company using your product or ah. a big company. Like people don't want to charge per user because like that is in a collaboration product that is like a vector of growth. But for all intents and purposes, that's also a measure of value. Yeah. Like, you know, what I mean a bigger company get more people are using it, more value. And at this point in time, everyone gets that. Yeah, I agree. So like yeah. making up your own weird like pricing scheme is always dangerous. And when you get to a point where people are just like, Yeah, I, I get it, you pay for storage. You pay per user, like doing what other people, what the market has now accepted as normal, is often very advantageous. You do not need to reinvent the wheel in that area. Yeah, people always talk about pricing and trying to price for value in these in these concepts, or just price to partially is price what the market expects. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's not some weird conversation every time the pricing comes up. Right. Right. Exactly. And then part of it's like. You know, figure out a way to have a low, like a lower entry offering, and eventually something that you can charge people a lot more for. Even if you don't have it right away, having a vision for what that might be—that's what I mean. That's what it's all about, right? So, like, it's good. I I think they should have like at least two pricing axes. So, if you charge per user, but you have multiple plans, so for example, yeah, like so that way, even if you have a company paying you for every single person at the company, there's still an option for that company to pay you more. Sure. You can have even more than two axes. Like if you look at Intercom, they have like 
they made three products, yeah. and then it's sometimes you can get to a point where you just confuse people too much, and yeah. they kind of get annoyed because it feels like you're nickel and diming them. But like you know, Slack, Dropbox, Trello, like you know, it's like per user, and there's different plans. Yep, and the different perfect. plans have features, right? The funny thing, so back to the enterprise thing, the funny thing is always using you know, those plans they put in the enterprise tier. They always put like SSO. Oh right, of course. Right, because they know that that's like a trigger to get people to pay you the most, and. Um, I think about that. It's kind of funny because um, we're going through this thing with Trello. We have we have an enterprise product that has SSO in it. One of the things that Atlassian did because they have so many different products is we realized that we could actually offer the SSO piece outside of the products. So no matter mm. how many products you use, you just pay once in a very low fee. Mm. So if you think about like Slack or even Trello today, if you want the SSO, you have to pay for the highest tier, right? And then you have to pay for all the people. So it's almost like the sticker shock in there is pretty high. Like there's not a way to jump into that. Sure. And one of the things that Elastian did, because they had all these different products, is we offered this thing called Elastian Access. And the idea there is you pay once for SSO, and it doesn't matter if you're using Jira or Confluence mm. or Trello or Bitbucket or OpsGenie or like you know, you're paying just once per user. And you get the SSO, the 2FA, you can enforce the 2FA. You know, there's a lot of like, it's basically security of the account. Sure. Absent the product that you're using. Oh, okay. So. Is, it, is it like a global account that you yeah, have? Yeah, there's like yeah. an Atlassian. And the word Trello's not on it yet, but we're working on, on making that transition. And one other thing I think you guys I remember from my use of Trello was I remember. Using it and hooking it into Google, and then it like showed all the different users. I hooked in the replicated account, and I'm an admin, so it showed all the different users. I could like easily, easily click and invite, invite them. which yeah. I thought was really it was like really well done. It was like, oh yeah, I want yeah. To see what I, I mean, many different products do that now. Like, but I think uh, Quip probably does that even better than we do. Oh really? Because um, okay. they do a thing. I think they keep that around, so that when you're in the product, you can like invite the other people, even though they don't have an account yet, and they just like. Pop them. They pop that in. You know, it's almost like they're pretending the person is there. You can like at them. Yeah, you yeah exactly. It's like, yeah, exactly. That's great. Yeah. That's, so it's like so they create a shadow account that then someone can come in and that's activate right. if you want to like that's have right. them activate it. That's yeah. actually great. Yeah. That's great. So idea. it's not only at this moment that you sign in or you know start your right. team. It's just sort of as you're using uh, it. Yeah, and you because you would add, you might add more people. You know, to your G Suite database later. Of course. So that that's like gets in the virality of like how you bring people in and those sorts of things and. And those products out there, if you look at any collaboration product, they're they're doing cool things. Like Trello does a bunch of stuff, but like Quip and even like our competitors, like you know, you look at Asana, but you also like Dropbox is an, is a nice one. Is they Dropbox is interesting because they have this nice like you might use it for yourself, but then you also use it at work. Right. All right, which is like a thing that happens a lot with Trello too. Yep. And um, they do a pretty good job of kind of making that really compelling and obvious. And I think they're also very much in the position of a bottoms up thing where people might just from a consumer perspective they might sign up for a Dropbox account and use it and then Dropbox can kind of look and say oh there's like 52 people at Atlassian using this like are you sure you don't want to buy the company account and everyone can use it you know that kind of thing so which i think from trial perspective might be interesting to your listeners but like that's one of these routes where you have a tool that is much more Kind of adopted at the individual team level, and it's not a tool that's only going to be used at the company level, right? You know, so like if you think about like Workday, for example, like Workday can't you can't adopt Workday 
with your marketing team, right? <laughs> like you have to sell to the CIO or the CEO or the it's CEO HR or person or whatever. Yes, exactly. And so you might be building an enterprise product from that perspective, and then it's the challenges there become the Salesforce challenge, right? Because you you, you have a really long sales cycle, you have to do all the typical enterprise sales, and it's hard to find those customers. You have to sell them the product because they're not currently using it. So you have to find the problem that they need. You have to demo it. You have to get it. You know, get an introduction, whatever. Like you have to do all that stuff. With the other tools like Dropbox or yeah, the, Trello, the bottom up sort of like bottoms up. Yeah. You, people are getting value. You have plans where people can whip their credit card out and pay for ten people at their company. And you might even pay that just because you're like, I want to use a great tool in my team. You know, I make you know two hundred k a year as a VP here, and I want to have my team on a right. great piece of software where we can all collaborate. So you right. don't care about the cost. You're like, right. you know, I'll pay couple hundred bucks a year to right. let us use this tool. And the the enterprise play there is usually like then you find you know a specific domain is using a lot of your product, right. whether it's free or paid, and then you kind of try to find the person to bring that all together. That's a different challenge, right? Because it, it could be that the person appropriate for that decision isn't the person using your tool, and you don't have that sales force. So you don't have somebody that's going to do field sales. They're going to go out and talk to the CIO and take them out golfing or whatever. You know, like you don't have that. So how do you do that from the perspective of Trello or? Other bottoms up tools. Yeah, I'm interested. Like, so you know, when you think about the go to market from Trello, right? So a lot of times on the open source world, what happens is people will look at who's using the product on the open source side and who's creating you know, issues and things, and then they'll have a top down Salesforce go out right. and get them. Right. So how did you approach that at Trello? Was it did you have a sales team? Yeah, I think initially. So the initial way that we first did the enterprise product was I hired somebody I'd worked with that she had done sales before for us. And then I hired her back at, as my at Fogbug at Fog Creek, yeah. And then she went somewhere else. And then I hired her back when we got funding. I hired oh, cool. as a VP of sales, and I said, "I don't have a product, an enterprise product. Like I have a paid product. I don't have an enterprise product." Sure. I was like, "Just go sell it." She's like, "But what is it?" And I'm like, "You tell me." <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, just go sell, you know, a handshake and a hug, and we can see build software. Yeah. So tell us right, what else right. we need to build. So she did. She went out there, you know, was like, I'm selling our enterprise product, which comes with an account manager, <laughs> me, you know, yeah. and you know, like that kind of stuff, where you just start out there, and then we learned, you know, obviously, you have the enterprise ready website, which just like details these things that you have to build, SSO, kind of like account management, that type of stuff. It's like top of the list. Yeah, um, for sure. And you you just build out those things, and then essentially that's the expectation of the the buyer, and that's what we did. Okay, so you initially you didn't really have like a business offering per se. We had Trello, which had some admin controls over your okay. team. But when we were thinking about enterprise, we're, these were like a different tier, right? Yeah. This isn't ten to fifty people. This is like fifty to. 10,000 people, yeah. right? We didn't even have anything in the product per se, right? Like we had to build pages and things like to sort of show them that. And I think in Trello's case, it's, it's a little bit more difficult. If you think about Slack, they kind of had this problem too because you would make like little Slack instances for your team. Like mm-hmm. you'd be the marketing team, you could make a Slack instance. And then you might even say, oh, well, the whole company can use it. And that works for like 100, 200, 300, 400, probably 400 or whatever. You sure. get to a certain size where the Slack instance. Kind of starts breaking down, and yep. now you need multiple instances, yeah. which is their enterprise grid thing. Enterprise grid, yeah. Yeah, so they had to invent that, right? They didn't have that. And the problem with enterprise grid was if you stitch together all these sites, well, in each of those sites, you have an account, but you're the same person across all those things, but you might have used a different email or a different right. password for each one. So the authentication part is that's a really it's hard a, problem to hard solve problem, because yeah. you start from 
if you started from there, if you started like, I'm going to have a grid and then build down, you'd be fine. But that's not how all these products work, right? You build a thing and then you realize, oh, now I have to layer this on top. So in Trello's case, if you think about Trello, it's just a network of users, right? There's no site. There's nothing that wraps people into a place. Like you don't go to nike.trello.com. You right. just go to trello.com, you log in. And so finding those other people and the content around that is sort of up to you to put those in a, in a specific place. But there's not really a wall around the people or the content implicit in the way that it's designed. Now that helps us on the collaboration side. But when you get to the enterprise layer, that's what they want, right? They're like, I know everyone in my company is using this product, and they're like, I really want to know that I have the peace of mind that, like, when I am sharing a board with Joe Smith, it's the Joe Smith that works at my company, right. not this other random Joe Smith. And when Joe's doing things in Trello, that Joe doesn't just invite somebody else in His or mom on accent, yeah, yeah exactly like just yeah. like they just want that peace of mind that they kind of know that they can kind of put up a, a kind of fence or a wall around it and just say okay all the contents in here all the people are in here and they're doing that thing this is interesting because i think that there's two approaches to user management right and i think github and trello did it in a similar way which yes. i call it user centric yes. right yes. versus like you think about like Google, it's like it's kind of a, it's like company or account centric, yes. right? So it's like yes. so you have one account on Trello, and then you could have your personal stuff attached to that, and you can have your work stuff attached to that, yes. right? Yeah. And so there's a you have like a global user, whereas like other places you might just like have multiple accounts the, to the, sign in and out. The thing though that we did where you just might have one account though, I think is a mistake. Okay. So when we looked at it, actually, people might use the same account, but it. I think the standard now when you look at Google is you have an email address, you have a personal email address, mm-hmm. you have a work email address, right? And you just switch between them to get your stuff. Yeah. And I think everyone gets that, right? Yeah. That's the way Dropbox works and and I and I think that's how Trello should work too. We don't have that today cuz we don't have an account switcher, but that's ideally where we should get because it just avoids a lot of confusion around these things even if you're not talking about enterprise, right? Even in the case of, you know, just what you're doing at work. And if you don't care, then fine. Like if you're using your replicated account and you've got your travel board on there, who cares, right? Yeah. Like you, you don't care. So fine. It doesn't matter. But it is the expectation that people are like, I have an email address that maps to my account, and that's how I set my identity. Like that is my, even though I'm the same human, I want to be able to log into this app with that email address. And right. then I want to use a different email address to log in for my other shit. Yeah, there's almost there's also some amount of like user uh, makes them more comfortable because they're like, oh yeah, that my personal Trello account is not associated with my work. I right. can like keep my personal stuff. And you don't get a there. notification from your mom about Christmas presents yeah. and then your boss about the right. thing. You know what I mean? Like that's the problem when you have these accounts. And of course you could build stuff into the app so it's separated your notifications by you know, whether you put this board in a different place or yeah. whatever. But it's just everyone just gets the account separation at the top being driven by your email address. It's just a standard now, right? You go to Google, yeah. you change it, yeah. you just get it. And then that, because that is the case, that is what we need to do because that is the expectation. Yeah. I mean, this is generally where enterprise ready came from as, a, as an idea, right? Was that like, look, there's these patterns that start to emerge. Yes. That like, if you just embrace the patterns, then everybody kind of understands how your stuff is going to work. And, That's right. and some of these things, it doesn't make much sense to, 
to like reinvent. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. It's not core to your product. We were talking about this before. We were talking about one of the features on there is audit logging. Yep. And if you know that you need to do audit logging when you build your product, like if you put the hooks in there in the beginning, you are going to be way happier, right? In the Instrument long run. Code in the beginning yeah. To send, and then it's going to be yeah. so easy. But audit logging is like when I think about that problem, like we didn't build that into Trellis. But when I think about it today, I'm like, oh, I have to build like a whole interface to like search all your your logs and it's gonna be all this data and you have to build like fancy search because it's just a you know just tons of data you want it to come back fast and I'm like everyone uses Splunk for this now yeah. and it's almost like today if you want to do audit logging you could just say great we publish all of our events to Splunk flip this switch and give us your Splunk instance you know and then yeah. that's how you provide that feature and today that would probably be fine for 95% of the enterprise companies you're going to talk to because it just becomes a standard I mean it's know? what they likely want to do with it anyway yeah. they want to centralize all of the incidents and acti- and, and like yeah. actions that have been taken in one place so they can search over it so it's that's not right. like they have to like right. you know and they can if they want to just search the Trello ones they just like make that a, 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 filter. a filter right yes, so exactly yeah. and then you don't have to worry about like building all that Filtering and search, which is clearly, you know, like you think of it in the case of Trello, that is not core right. to the value prop that we do. So, like spending time, like we have to implement that because that is the expectation of the of the company. But you want to do it in a way that puts your resources on things that differentiate you from other people, not you know rebuilding the wheel that's not actually going to drive the value. Yeah, hundred percent. So like if you had reporting, right? You could build all kinds of crazy reports and stuff like that. But and you might need to do at least some of that stuff internal. But at some point, you could just say, "How do I build a really good export to Excel or Google Sheets?" Sure. Right? Because that's what a lot of people just want to crunch numbers. And so if you have a really good Google Sheets integration, then that goes a long way, yeah. right? And you don't have to rebuild. Everything that, like, think about Google Sheets. They built filtering formulas, and these are like as as you start to go down that path of reporting, you're gonna spend so much time building interfaces, and the, and and then you're like, well, now I have to do a filtering mechanism, and it's like, why write that code when yeah. you could you could just publish your stuff to Google Sheets? Yeah, I mean, reporting is one of these features. I feel like it's very underutilized because I, I think about. From the perspective, of, I was actually just like at this conference yesterday, and this healthcare like CIO was just like, you know, when are we gonna have like my facilities should be able? To, I should have like data about my facilities. It takes them two weeks. I got to run some SQL query. I'm like, that guy just wants a report. And yeah. so if you can sell software to the people that like run his facilities that like generates a report yeah. or like produces a you know a Google Sheet yeah. output, right? Like that guy is going to be super happy about. Yes. Yeah. Like that software, but you don't have to build all the interface no. yourself, right? Like he just wants the job to be done, which is take this data, get it in a format that I want. If that's a, you know, you build a button to do that, and then you can build a schedule on top of the button, so it sends you the email of the sheet or what, or yeah. the link to the exactly. sheet or whatever every week. It's like that's like eighty percent of the job. Yeah, because realistically, you're probably not going to slice and dice the data the right way for them anyway. That's like, right. So you just want to give them. Some way to get access to the data to then right. produce it. Now, over time, I think it's important to watch what your users are doing. That's right. And so, like, you if can pull that stuff in, yeah, some of that. And you're it. like, oh, this one report seems to be the thing that people get really excited about. Then you sort of build that in yes. and maybe have a little dashboard. So it's yeah. easy, you know, it's, it services it easier to, yeah. to users. Yeah, absolutely. But I still think like the value of reporting is really like to let the person who is paying for your software to just to justify it, right? Yeah, you want to make them like the hero. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
That's the value of reporting. That w- word reporting though is so loaded. Like when I try to think about what that means, like we've thought about this a lot. Yeah. And, and we get into this on the product side, we get into a lot of the language that we use is not precise enough. So I think it's confusing because you might be talking about audit logging as a type of reporting, right? It's like yeah. you're, you might say, I want reporting at the access level. I want to know who logged in when. Because somebody just took over an account and there's a breach and I need to follow them through the application and see what they accessed and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that's a type of reporting, right? Then there's the data, the content in your product and the reporting around that. Then there's the meta layer on top of that. Like If you think about, like in Trello, you could say, I want to report on how many cars move from one list to the next list or something like that you know which is it's like almost meta or who was visiting this board mm, like great. how often have people seen this board when's the last time they came here or like like things that might even be invisible today sort of like surfacing them and reporting but because it means so many different things a lot of times we put it as a feature and you just say reporting and it can mean like 14 different features right yeah my suggestion is always to put it, you know, advanced reporting in your enterprise plan and then just work with your early adopter enterprise customer to figure out what they want, yeah. right? To your point, like that's kind of how you guys started to figure out what the what the pool was on yeah. enterprise features, oh, yeah. right? Absolutely. You know, yeah. work with early design partners who are excited about your product and want to use it. I think you start to see a similar set of requests. So you do. I also think though that sometimes you can get an enterprise customer where they're just this a special snowflake, and then the problem is that the things that they want are really unique to their business. And because you're small and they pay you money, a lot of money, you know, your interests aren't aligned essentially. Yeah. Like, and you do all this stuff, and it turns out nobody else wants that particular thing. And so it's hard for you to. It's like NRE, right? Non recurring engineering. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to like back up and be like, you know what? It's okay. Like, I can't. Build this for you because it's specific to what you're doing, or I have to build it in a more generic way so other people can get into it. So, from my perspective, it's like you take note of what everybody wants and you spend time and you like understand it and you say, What are you really trying to accomplish with that? And you kind of dig in a little bit deeper, you try to ask why a little bit more, and then eventually. You figure out if like this is a very specific, and, and hopefully there's like you know part of the other goal for enterprise ready is like a common vernacular of all the different features people might be asking for. So mm-hmm. if they're asking for some, you know, changes to the overall workflow of how your tool works, like maybe that's not how you want to do it, right? That's a kind of a core product decision. But if they're asking for some kind of single sign-on, right? Like you know, unless it's some PKI system that they invented in in house, like if it's SAML. If it's Google sign in, like these are pretty standard things that you should probably be doing. Sure, but that's what we're doing as, as like a product owner. Like your job is to intake all the feedback, yeah, and then build the thing that the market wants. That's the challenge. of What we do. So let's talk a little bit more about like Trello now, because you know obviously you had a, a great acquisition by Atlassian, mm-hmm. and so now. I mean, that's how long ago was that? Two years. Oh my gosh, two years. Yeah. Time flies. So, tell us a little bit about like how things are going inside Atlassian. Like, what's the you know, what's been the change in terms of product or features or you know integration? Yeah, I, I mean, like there was a lot of alignment around values. Fantastic company. We just actually released a uh, document that kind of open sourced some of the M and A terms. I, I saw that. I saw it. Really good. But and I think like the, my one concern was founders aren't going to understand why this is such a big deal. Until you've been through this, because the yeah. problem is you go through it and you discover all this stuff, and it's super opaque. You don't know what it means. You don't know if it's fair. It's super emotionally taxing, and 
being on the other side of it, I could tell you, like, you know, if you're lucky enough to go through an acquisition, this document is super helpful because it just it cuts away a lot of the crap that you might have spent time worrying about or arguing about, and it's just not important. It's a hard process, I think, because you have to do it alone. Like most of the people on your team, on your company, don't know you're going through this, and right. sometimes because sometimes these things don't work out right or whatever, and and then there's a lot of data requests, and it's just like six months or a year of pain, a little bit trying yeah. to get get through that. But the fact that Elassian did this is a demonstration of the, particularly why you know we did this acquisition. Like the people there are awesome. I love it. We're doing great things. We're able to do what we need to do for Trello. And so I can look at things like the Elassian Access, which is the mm-hmm. SSO product I was talking about before, and I'd be like, this is awesome. Because it's unfair to force customers to have to pay you know, twenty dollars a user if all they need is this thing. Like we can do this across all these products and be in this one position where we could deliver you this account level security and we could still have premium packaging for our product that has product specific value, mm-hmm. right? But at this account level, it's like you don't care if it's it, it could be Slack, it could be Dropbox. You know, you're just sure. sort of like, I just want SSO. So that's where we start to sort of see opportunities for us to Kind of deliver value because we're part of a bigger organization. It's cool. I imagine that there was, you know, back to sort of the, you know, fog bugs days. You got the word right. You got the name right. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> You're like fog bugs. Yeah. Yeah. Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's spelled with a Z. Yeah. I know. Yeah. yeah. With a Z. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Buzz. Yeah. Yeah. Bugs. But like that, that, that's sort of a you know a little. I'm sure that felt a little bit interesting to be. Oh, that part of it, yeah. yeah, that was super weird because, you know, from our perspective, Joel and I, like, we didn't really know the founders super well. Mm-hmm. So our experience was, wow, this is somebody just like kind of just like always like in the Authority same place we all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like and like winning in a big way, right? Yeah. Like, who would have thought that bug tracking could be a thirty billion dollar business? You know, like <laughs> you'd be like, whoa. And so that was definitely an interesting component to it. And like and then meeting them and talking to them and they're just great people. Yeah. Like the, all the whole, all the Alassians, it's an awesome team. And I love the people I work with on the wider leadership teams. And they've done at least, I don't know, twenty I guess in the in the article that we said the other day, they did like a billion dollars worth of acquisitions. But I feel like they've done, you know, maybe like twenty four different acquisitions. Yeah, they've really built that business. For, I mean, I think Confluence was an acquisition, right? No, I don't know. If, I don't think Confluence. Okay, well, maybe, maybe it was. Well, HipChat was, Bitbucket yeah. was. Right, Bitbucket definitely um, was. Then we got Ops Genie recently, Jira Line right. was another thing. You know, they're still doing it. And, it. and it's great because it's like every time we do it, we learn, we iterate, try to make it a better experience the next time. It's cool. Yeah, I mean, the open sourcing of a M&A term sheet is yeah. a is a pretty big step. Like I've never seen anything like that before. I've never seen that kind of transparency. Yeah, and like that's a, I mean, so I I went through I mean, my first company was acquired not for a lot of money, right? So like yeah. small acquisition, but it still took five months and it still was. Oh, you so know, you know some of this stuff, like yeah. the indemnity clause and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, like, and you what? have no is idea. That, is that a big deal? Is it not a big deal? Should I worry about this? Am I getting screwed? You and know, lawyers half the time don't oh, know. The, and the lawyers they. Like they're, you know, your lawyers are on your side, their lawyers are on their side, and so like their job is to protect you. But it ends up being like a lot of, 
headbutting yeah. for not like a lot of business value. You can't tell like which parts are going to matter and which parts are not. And yeah. so this just this document was just like, hey, let's just tell people what we're going to do, and it's fair, and everyone can see it, and then we just avoid all that. And of course, cool. it's still there's still many other terms that you need to negotiate and understand in that deal, but at least you can take a lot of them off the table. So in the VC world, too, you raise money and do the MA thing. There's all these different terms and like little tweaks, you know, can make a big difference. And so, sort of knowing what is market, like what yeah. is the like yeah. thing that this is standard yeah. in these do you, deals. Do you remember when, I used to, when the the VC deals used to be um, like oh like uh, what was the preference thing? and yes, two yes, X yes. preference yes, exactly two, yeah, participating like, preferred pr- participating preferred and, all these and, things. and no one kind of understood it and it wasn't until a while until the VCs were just like okay we're not we're just doing one X you know they're not gonna double dip and and everyone's like oh shit yeah. like if you go back in time you're like if you were a person that was going through that you wouldn't quite understand it until there was an exit and then you'd be like damn they got yeah, they got a double way, dip way right? more my company yeah. yeah i think the venture hacks if you ever remember so naval wrote that with i think nivi they before they started uh before they started angel list and it was yeah. like the it was the only source of this information from right. like a founder perspective right, right? like right. how do i do this and so yeah, that that information is super valuable because you go through those transactions like a couple times as a founder. You go an M and A transaction like maybe you go through once yeah. and then you learn a bunch of lessons yeah. about. And when do you go through it again, right? Yeah. And then and there's probably a lot less volume on the M and A side than there was on the investing side. Sure. Obviously, it's just like a tautology, I guess. <laughs> if you invest in yeah. all these companies, not many of them succeed. How many get acquired is going to be a fraction of the total number invested. So. The volume there for the audience for this is probably a lot less than you know Series C form documents or the Y Combinator did and stuff like that. But but I think it's kind of cool because we put it out there and then maybe other founders will see it. You know, it's like oh, some other company will buy. It won't be Elastium buying that, but you have some other company and you can kind of point to it and kind of say, look, they're doing this. Yeah. So I don't know if that that may have not made the other companies. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, it definitely made some corporate development people really upset. They were like, "Why are they giving away the secrets?" Yeah, These are, exactly. this is, you exactly. know, I always, I think I heard that the price that you first get is half of what they hope you'll take. Is the, is oh, the okay. bit of knowledge that one. I was that that's I was I was given. I was like, "Oh, that's good. That's a good way to understand how much they, they you might actually be you know potentially acquired for." So. But so, any other things on the like the enterprise go to market side? Now that you're part of it last year, are you seeing bigger companies that are adopting it as part of this? Oh and- yeah, so so there's a lot of things like we did. Um, I you know because we're part of a bigger organization, it's much easier for us to do uh, SOC two type oh, okay. two, SOC two type one, SOC sure. two type two, that kind of stuff. ISO twenty seven K. Like just all those like you know letters and initial things, right? That I always you, I always suggest reading the ISO twenty seven thousand and one spec is yeah. is like one hundred twenty seven pages of very like boring. Yeah, yeah, you suggest for people to read that. Yeah, of course, <laughs> but it's great. It's like you read it and you realize that it's basically the the playbook that every security person will ever bring. Like every yeah. question that you're yeah. going to in a security yeah. review, you're like, oh yeah, I've read that. I know it's what the like, answer is. And so that being part of a bigger organization is easier for that kind of stuff because sure. you can just like lean on a whole bunch of legal people. They, know the they answer, can help yeah, you yeah. lead it through, and so so we did all that stuff, which is awesome because now you can put it up on the website. Sure, GDPR was a much easier for. I remember, I think you told me you read the whole GDPR oh, yeah. thing, and I was like, "Whoa, dude! Yeah, like, that's nuts." Um, this is one of my secret things. I just read all the stuff that everyone's afraid of, yeah, and then you like you realize like, okay, it's, it's you not know, that bad. Lay in a hammock. Yeah. it's not that bad. I mean, yeah. I think I condensed it and I published a version on Enterprise Ready that was like. 
it's like 34 pages, yeah. right? Of like, you know, normal PDF stuff. So I think like a lot of that was made easier having support for that stuff because they're doing it for all the products. And yeah. so you're kind of like, oh, we've been through this. You might have to put systems in place for some of the sock stuff. So we had done all that stuff as part of the acquisition. You know, things like like HIPAA, FedRAMP, like you, you start to try to figure out like what do we need to do for the like all that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, sure. when you think about the enterprise stuff, I think that's a big deal. On the go-to-market side from the sale, like ah, I guess the last thing yeah, they they have sales, but it's it's not Yeah, they don't call it sales. Yeah, yeah. but it, well they you can't, do. You can't, you can't it's not sales. It's a uh, you know, enablement. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's sales. Um <laughs> Certainly at the top level, the, like at the big, bigger companies, cloud companies, you know. So now we're in a position where it's like, hey, we can go in and we can, you know, you're probably, you're probably already using Jira. You're, there's priority people using Trello. There's priority people using Confluence. Yeah. And so from a sales position, it's a little bit easier, you know. Versus you talk like to some other enterprise founders, and you can think about the the case where if I go back to what I was talking about earlier, where the salesperson has to go in and they have to actually sell the product. That's the good thing about the bottom up thing. You don't have to sell the product per se. The people are already using it. Right. Right. You're not going into a company and saying, "Hey, you guys should use Trello to do stuff." You're like, "Hey, did you know six thousand people at your company are using Trello to get their shit done?" Right. Of course, it changes the question because then they say, "Well, so what do I need to pay for?" Mm. <laughs> like, if they're using it, great. That sounds great. <laughs> like everyone's great using. Work. it. But you know, and just like you care about the security of the content and that kind of stuff because it's you know the trail's built on collaboration, so it's very easy to collaborate. You might not want that. If you mm-hmm. want that, then maybe you're right. But it's probably the case that you want more visibility about this stuff. If somebody leaves the company, you want to know that the data and the content stays within. It's shared with only the right people, uh, and so that's what you build into the enterprise product to give the people more control over the accounts and over the content. Related to the accounts that people are using for work. I mean, that was probably a direction you were already heading in when you were you were doing some of that before the acquisition, yes. right? Like, so these yeah. are things that were happening. I'm guessing that like you've started to do more. I mean, enablement within your side to to help the teams that are not doing sales, quote unquote, sales in the last. They're doing game. sales. Okay, they're doing I, sales. I don't know. but just, just to give them the, the things they need in order to when they go into a you know some large enterprise, they can sell the whole suite. Because I, I, one thing that I've noticed is that like. When you talk to an enterprise, like the Atlassian stack or the Atlassian suite, however you want to think about it, yeah, they get pretty bought in, right? So they start using a lot of the different tools right. you guys offer, right? Yeah, and I think the way that it's designed is like you don't have to though, sure, right? Yeah, like yeah. you start with Jira, you could start with Trello, and yep. you could use these two things, but then they kind of you add them on, and they can kind of layer with each other. And, and it's like your phone company, or it gets cheaper when you add more services. Yeah, it turns out. Well, that's know? the way it is with the access because you only pay once, and then you know with the SSO, you're paying once. And yeah. So if you add more products to it, you're actually saving money as you go across. Yeah, it's it's somehow cheaper it, to, it's, to to use more. It's interesting though because that nobody else kind of has that concept. So sure. there is some education around that because then the expectation of the customer can come in and they could say, "Wait, why do I have to pay extra for SSO?" And you're like, no, you're not. <laughs> you're like, you're not paying extra. You're like, I could take that money and put it onto, tack it onto the price of the Trello package, right. right? But I'm not doing it that way. I'm pulling it out, right? So it's sort of like, how do you pitch it and explain it and market it can be make a big difference so that the perception is what you are trying to do, right? If the perception is the opposite of what you're trying to do, you can sort of shoot yourself in the foot with some customers. Like, do, do you know what I'm saying? They could be like, I thought SSO was included. Right, and then you're sort of saying, "Well, let me explain why we're actually giving it cheaper, and you don't have to pay 
for you could use Trello for free, for example, and you could still get the yeah. SSO. So it's just a different way of pitching it. I mean, there's some interesting and complex pieces around having that suite, right? Most folks yes. are going in and selling one product, right? And right? it's a little bit simpler, and and a lot of times what they're selling is a site. Or something, you know, like it's like a URL. You're like elastian.workday.com sure. or like elastian.slack.com or something. And you go in and you kind of just sell it. It's very simple. So as you add more of those things, it's it's advantageous, but it also creates a little bit of a of a challenge of how you sell those things. There's more conduits for the people to show up and and come into the your customer base essentially. Yeah, because exactly. I mean, you guys have so many different products and ways for people to engage. I mean, I'm sure. That you just get spread throughout organizations, and you're, you're probably every company, you know, yeah. in the Fortune. Oh, that's why I tell I tell when other people are going to talk to a customer, I'm like, just tell me who it is, because I can tell you how many. I, just so you know, so you're in the in the conversation. Tell me what the domain is, so that you know you could be like, oh, did you know you had four thousand people using Trello? Yeah, it's like a lot of times they don't. So yeah, and then they're like, huh, I wonder what we should do about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great, Michael. I really appreciate you being here. I, I wish we had more time. This I could probably talk to you and ask you a million more questions about, you know, your early days at uh, Fog Creek all the way through to everything you've done. We barely tapped into any of the stuff you did at Stack Overflow, where I'm sure you know there's some great lessons there too. But this has been just been great. I really appreciate all of your time. Thanks for having me. I'll come back for part two later. So. Perfect. I'd love that. All right. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.